George Orwell had a Christmas drink with a bloke called Stephen. Ate roast beef and Yorkshire pud, deep and crisp and even. Brightly shone the moon that night, underwater glowing. He knew not where his beer came from, but he knew where it was going. Very good. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome. Uh, this is Orwellian, the podcast dedicated to the essays of George Orwell. And we are here. Uh, we are socialism's little helpers here to bring you a jolly Orwellian Christmas. My name is Lewis and I'm here with my co-host. He's a large and jolly man with a red nose who'll come down your chimney if you're not careful. <laughs> Sounds like a mother warning her daughter that I'm coming to town. Um, like Simon, that's what I was meant to say, wasn't it? And we're very... I, I think this mulled beer is kicking in, isn't <laughs> yes, it? Yes, what are we drinking, Simon? Lewis came along to my house this evening with a lovely recipe for mulled beer, which is a litre of dark ale, 300 millimetres of brandy, Two cloves, two star anise, four, three cinnamon sticks, nutmeg, lemon zest, bit of honey, ginger, bit of honey, and you uh, and a lot of love, and a lot of love, and a headache tomorrow. <laughs> and it received Simon's seal of approval. The uh, <laughs> uh, Simon declared it to be Moorish, which uh, I think is uh, one of the nicest things Simon ever says about any food or drink. <laughs> yeah. And we proceeded the evening with a roast pork shoulder with some Yorkshire pud veg. You excelled yourself pud. once again. A very good night, and it's about to go downhill. <laughs> <laughs> like every Christmas dinner. Yeah, yeah. Soon it's going to descend into fights. And... Yeah. So we'll try and save our scrap for when we've finished recording. But today, it's no shock to tell the world we're recording a Christmas special. Our first Christmas special. Yeah. Two essays in one. His two Christmas essays that he wrote. Special festive bumper edition. The first one being a Bear Christmas for the Children. Bear Christmas for the Children. This, these are rather, you know, minor Orwellian essays, but uh, as we'll come to see, they touch on subjects that were very close to Orwell's heart. And I kind of get the impression from these essays that he rather liked Christmas. I think we can get that into that later. Yeah, he definitely seems to like Christmas. As do we. We're not anti-Christmas at all, are we? I'm we a big both fan enjoy of Christmas. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I think we can get onto this later. My view of Christmas and what it's about has changed as I've gotten older, but I have never stopped being excited. You know when I came in earlier and said, uh, are you feeling Christmassy, Simon? And immediately you said yes. And mm. that is... Um, that's just how I feel, you know, no matter how old I get. I know there's lots of people who maybe don't like Christmas for personal reasons, family reasons, but I was very lucky to, enough to grow up in a family where Christmas was a very happy occasion and I'm still excited. Even though my family's on the other side of the world at the moment, I still get a kind of base level of excitement at this time of year, don't you? I do. I, I like it being a time to reflect. And... As we'll discuss in this essay, I do use it as a time to indulge. Which, um, as we'll come on to, maybe not in Bear Christmas for the Children, but in the uh, As I Please, yeah. Orwell points out that, you know, 
indulgence is kind of a necessity, which is not something you'd expect from a socialist, but we'll get onto that later. So, Fair Christmas for the Children, published in the Evening Standard, 1st of December, quite early, uh, 1945. I think this kind of shows... You know how people are always saying, oh, Christmas starts earlier and earlier every year? Of course, this was published in December, but it shows that in 1945, the war is barely over. People are ready to talk about Christmas right at the beginning of December. I think they probably need it. And it's why he's written this essay in the tone he's written it. I believe Orwell has been scratching around for ways he can be positive post-war. And I think Christmas was his route into that positivity. Because the economy is crap, people are depressed, the men coming back from war are, are broken men. What is there to be positive about? The children. The children. And and entertaining the children. And, and the simplicity of youth. That's what I really got from this essay, the, the joy of the simplicity of youth, and Orwell taking a lot of pleasure in those things. But before we get into that, I mean, what did you think of this essay, all in all? It was, I mean, it's not one of his classics. We're, we're doing it because it's Christmas. But it was nice. The, the themes I really enjoyed, and it was nice to... I, I really enjoyed reading about the toys he lists that their children played with in 1945, and he mentions one that in 1945 had gone out of fashion. So it'll be interesting, I think, for us to compare to what kids probably play with today. When I recommended this essay to you, I did think, you know, Simon's probably going to think this is a bit of, you know, uh, Orwellian marginalia, you know, not exactly of the calibre of politics in the English language. I remember how you, when we looked at uh, Just Junk, I love yeah. Just Junk because... For, for the reason you hate it, because of the lists and lists of things. Yeah. Um, but I really liked, and I think you, I get the impression you liked the way that this essay, a lot of this essay was just lists of things that pleased Orwell. Well, another thing is, Lewis, what we established was that you have a great deal of nostalgia for junk shops. Whereas I didn't, it, it was never a part of my youth. Whereas Christmas, we both share the nostalgia. Hence, I could connect to this essay better than I could just junk. I would say uh, this essay, and tell me if you think so as well, I would say this essay touches on a lot of the Orwellian themes we've discovered throughout this series. Um, it touches on the relationship between economics and humanity, yeah. um, human pleasure. It touches very much on the Orwellian pleasure, the simple pleasure, the pleasure you create for yourself. It's anti-materialism. Yes, although it's quite curious because you would expect um, Orwell as a socialist to, and, and as a guy who is very much make, do and mend, you would think that maybe he would spend this essay railing against the consumer culture, uh, which encourages parents to buy their kids all kinds of stuff at Christmas. But well, he hints at it. Mm, but well, what you get from this essay isn't actually a man railing against toys. It's actually, you really get the impression that toys gave Orwell a lot of pleasure. There's these. But, you know, but he is railing against manufactured toys. What he's saying is, you can just make your own toy and be just as happy. So why are we wasting our money on buying kids things they're not even aware of? That comes into it. He points out there's a couple of really great quotes about uh, how... Orwell writes, the importance of manufactured toys 
is exaggerated. And he even says at one point, um, when he sees a chemistry set in a shop in London, <laughs> yeah. um, and he finds out the price, he says, I felt as though I had been hit over the head with a rubber club, <laughs> which I found a really interesting quote, because it also kind of connects capitalism with fascism, you know, that idea of police brutality, yeah. um, which, you know, we can see the war's over and Orwell's already reminding people, well, we've defeated fascism, but we still have this kind of uh, compulsory capitalism in our society, which for Orwell, like extreme capitalism and extreme fascism were kind of on a continuum. Um, but the, I really got this impression that even though Orwell does think, yes, you can make your own toys and make your own entertainment and they're the best, he does have a kind of sneaking love of the toys you can buy in toy shops, doesn't he? Just the way he lists them so lovingly, uh, the way he writes about the uh, celluloid articles, rubber uh, swans and goldfish to float in your bath, mechano sets, bo bows and arrows, uh, chemistry sets, he seems to really love these things. He talks about lead soldiers. I imagine they're not made of lead anymore. Not anymore, no. I had, growing up, um, my dad still had some of my great-grandfather's lead soldiers from the 1900s. Wow. They were all Imperial British troops with pith helmets and kilts. And painted by your grandfather? Or... I'm not sure if they were painted by him. I think he kind of repaired them. Okay. Um, but... Uh, Yes. Did you ever have lead soldiers? In your no, family? but it's one of when it's one of the things I'm putting aside for when I'm retired. I want to recreate the Battle of Waterloo with little lead soldiers. I'm going to dedicate a room of my house to it. I'm going to recreate everything. I'm going to build it all myself to the exact dimensions, the landscape, and more or less, because I can't collect thousands, but each regiment, each battalion. So it's something like, it's a little project I've got set aside for retirement. I can just imagine coming to visit you in your retirement and meeting your wife and saying, oh, Simon in, Simon in his war shed again. Yeah. And then I go in and you're in there dressed as Napoleon. He said something about bloody blue shell. <laughs> <laughs> and today's the day. <laughs> so that's what I got from this essay, that, you know, Orwell's saying... It's great to make your own toys, but I think he has this sneaking love of certain kinds of toys. Probably nostalgia for the kinds of toys he used to play with. About the chemistry outfits, he said, one of that they are one of the most absorbing of all toys for an intelligent boy of about twelve. Is that him? I think so. That's who he's referring to. I I was trying to remember if I had a chemistry set. It rings a bell. I don't specifically remember. I do remember having test tubes um, being very disillusioned when what I put in them didn't have the effect I expected them to have. Hoping for an explosion. Basically an explosion or smoke at the least. Did you have one? No, I was given... Just uh, heroin. You're so prejudiced against the Scots. <laughs> um, I was given an in, uh, build-your-own-internal-combustion-engine uh, by my granddad. Um, my, I was given Meccano sets. He mentions Meccano. Meccano, I believe, is still around. What, what, what did you get for your 18th birthday? It was like, rebuild a Rolls-Royce plane engine. But I would say one of the best Christmas presents I got, which again was from my granddad, was a proper uh, train set with a train that puffed smoke 
What, do you have to put little mini bits of coal in it? No, no. It, I can't remember how it puffed smoke. Actually, my dad... Probably just water vapour, wasn't it? Mm, uh, probably. But, uh, yes, that was one of the best. Uh, he doesn't mention train sets in this essay. Did it have it? a whistle? It did. It had a whistle. It had a, you know, track. You know, we put it all around the living room. It went, you know, perfect loop. Wow. Oh, that was brilliant. What was your best Christmas present? Was it you? Was it the globe? Yeah, that was your globe. birthday present. Yeah. Um, it was Christmas. It, I got a globe. I would have been about nine, and I know it sounds quite simple, especially this would have been nineteen eighty nine. But I was absolutely enamoured with it. Still staring at it. Nineteen eighty nine, one year, and it was out of date. No more Soviet Union. Or True. <laughs> I wish I still had it, you know, to see what was on it. But as you can see from my, we're sitting in my living room right now recording this, and to my left there is a globe, a globe, an old-fashioned one. But I, I have to have one with me now everywhere I go. I, I'm absolutely obsessed with them. What happened to the one you got back then? Well, two years after that, we moved to Hong Kong. My dad got posted there, so we went to live in Hong Kong for three years. And I think a lot of things had to be thrown given away so I imagine it was part of the cull that's a pity <laughs> um, but yeah so that would have been my best I think that supports Orwell's argument in this essay wasn't it I, at the end of the day I didn't need anything too extravagant a simple globe absolutely captivated me we've always uh, talking about Orwellian pleasures we always touch on how an Orwellian pleasure is either something you make yourself or it's something that stirs your imagination. Your, probably uh, garnered from nature. Yes. Your globe stirred your imagination yeah. and probably had an effect on your adult life, being a, a traveller. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we could say the same of my train set. I think that was just a, a bit of... Uh, <laughs> are, you, are, we, are you into trains these days? Just I like... A, a passing interest? I like travelling by trains, but... but you, have you been to the Omnia Train Museum? No, no, I haven't. Oh, you'd enjoy that. So you're not that into trains if you haven't... I, I wouldn't... You don't take photos, do you? No, no. <laughs> what is this, the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> Didn't expect that. Yes, this, this essay, it's all about Orwellian pleasures, about toys. So, Simon, uh, do you have any highlights from this essay? Two highlights. Um, him talking about his toy cannon. He was very posh, wasn't he? I don't know you were... The man had a toy cannon. How does he describe it in the essay? Well, it's an insight into a very different time. It's like, you know, when you're parents, you, your mum and dad and my mum and dad are of a kind of similar generation. And you know when they tell you the kind of things they could get away with as kids because there was no health and safety. So Orwell... Um, writes, one of the greatest joys of my own childhood were those little brass cannons on wooden gun carriages, which are now hardly to be found outside an antique shop. The smallest had barrels the size of your little finger. The largest were six or eight inches long, cost ten shillings and went off with a noise like the Day of Judgment. To fire them, you needed gunpowder, which the shop sometimes refused to sell you. Uh, and the disgust in his voice as he says it. <laughs> But a resourceful boy, again, me, George Orwell, could make gunpowder for himself if he took the precaution of buying the ingredients from three different chemists. 
Well, he goes on further, doesn't he? And, and this has to talk about firearms and children. One of my favourite quotes in the whole oeuvre of George Orwell. And like I think the whole this canon is. Of George Orwell. <laughs> the whole canon. Um, oh, headshot. Um, so, uh, yes, this is one of those uh, parts of George Orwell which I absolutely love. Um, and I think you can, you know, we talk about how Orwell is often thought of as a kind of dour guy in a grey tenement writing about the dangers of totalitarianism. He was very funny and he had a very dry wit. And here's another example. One of the advantages of being a child 30 years ago, i.e. Uh, like 1910, um, one of the advantages of being a child 30 years ago was the lighter hearted attitude that then prevailed towards firearms. Yeah. It's incredible, like his attitude to firearms and children. This is obviously before the advent of school shootings. This just made me think about how it goes to show that it's modern society and its influence, which is to blame for school shootings and children going crazy with guns. Because he's talking about how a kid could go and buy an air rifle just from a shop at the age of 10 or 11 and be trusted not to shoot up his classroom with it. Well, it says here, you know, for sh seven shillings and sixpence, you could buy what Orwell calls a fairly lethal weapon known as a saloon rifle. Again, a brilliant quote. I bought my first saloon rifle at the age of 10 with no <laughs> questions asked. And again, my first saloon rifle. <laughs> what, how many did you have? It seems he, when he became 11, he upgraded all the way until 15 when he had a Gatling gun. <laughs> Sorry, but similar to this, he talks about how there's nothing a young child wants more than a catapult. Mm. A bit of wood shaped like a V and some elastic. And what, he's, what, what was he, he talks about, which had to be made of a certain material? It says here, it was because of this universal passion, i.e. for catapults, which the Americans, if we've got any American listeners, uh, you know them as slingshots. Um, oh, it was because of this universal passion for catapults or slingshots that the Belisha beacons, those are uh, streetlights, basically, uh, the Belisha beacons had to be made out of metal instead of glass. <laughs> now, this is a very... Orwellian quote, I think, because it shows the juxtaposition of humanity and authority. And it's a kind of rebellion against authority, isn't it? These boys going around with their catapults, uh, breaking the glass of the Belisha beacon. And if you read the essay, you'll be able to surmise with a bit of content analysis of the text that he very much approves of it. Or approved of it. Well, uh, there's this brilliant quote here, beyond a quite low age, um, children often seem to get their greatest enjoyment out of things that cannot strictly be called toys, and um, from the age of about eight onwards, a bright child wants to be either making something or breaking something. Which were you? I think I wanted to be, I, I was a bit of a nerd, I wanted to be reading something as a child. <laughs> I, I was a breaker. And a burner. I like burning <laughs> I, actually, stuff. Uh, actually, I was a bit of a burner too. Yeah. I loved give me a candle or... Uh, a box of matches yeah. and I was happy as Larry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a brother very similar. <laughs> so, um, there's this idea as well. He uses this phrase, normal, healthy children. Simon, have you got any idea why Orwell... Normal, healthy children. 
<laughs> not that you know no, of. Not officially. Um, do you know why Orwell might have been focusing so much on children and children's toys at this time? Any ideas? Well, children, because I think... He, he wants to get away from the dourness of post-war society, so the innocence of children as well, and that's tied in with Christmas. And Christmas is about the children. Although when we get to the next essay, as I please, 66, we'll discover it's probably not all about so the children. The next, the next <laughs> essay is more about your and my kind of Christmas. Yeah, our kind of Christmas, without children to ruin it. <laughs> and I, you know what, I think you're right, but I think this also really mirrors what was going on in George Orwell's life. Because He's getting sick. He, not only is he getting sick, but a couple of years before he wrote this essay, he and his wife, his first wife, Eileen, adopted a young boy. And um, I believe, I'm very sorry, I should have done my homework, but I believe he's called Richard Orwell and he's still with us. Um, and he's done a lot uh, to preserve his father's memory and promote his father's oh, work. the Orwell Foundation. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so Orwell, very sadly, um, not, you know, only a year or so after he adopted his uh, son, um, his wife Eileen died and Orwell was left to care for the child himself and, you know, had to, on his meagre income, employ a nursemaid to help him. And when he was in Jura... He was up there with Richard, his, his uh, son, and the nursemaid. So I think one of the reasons Orwell wrote this essay is probably because he was out looking for toys for Richard. And it perhaps, got him thinking about it. Yes, yeah. perhaps he noticed... Um, God, I do hope he is called Richard. I should have looked this up beforehand. But perhaps he noticed that his son was perfectly happy with, as he said in the essay, a knotted towel or a can with a stone in it. Because being up in Jura, perhaps he didn't have access to any... Not many department stores. Department stores. There's no um, Hamleys on the Isle of Jura, so the son had to make do. And as you said, he wasn't rich, was he? Animal Farm didn't make any money. 1984 did, and that's why he was up there. And that was only a couple of years before he died as well. Uh, By the way, uh, Richard, if you're listening, um, we love your father, and uh, we'd love to hear from you, (laughs) orwellpod at gmail.com. Yeah. Is your name Richard? Oh God, I hope so. <laughs> and what toys did you play with oh, exactly. when you were up in Jura? Now, um, just to finish off with this essay, um, the last paragraph, I don't know about you, I love the last paragraph um, because he always brings it back, Orwell always brings it back to the human element, the, the, the human vignette, you know, these ideas about um, clockwork mice to frighten your aunt. Um <laughs> wooden bricks square enough to stand up on one another. And this is another reason why I think Orwell took pleasure in these, because he noticed what it was about these toys which were particularly pleasing. The idea that you could frighten your aunt with this clockwork mouse, or motor cars had pedals and chain to drive them, and that these nine pins were round instead of, with balls, round instead of being egg-shaped. I think this... This essay is just so full of joy, isn't it? He always concludes his essay in the concluding paragraph with the tone he wants to be carried away with the reader. Normally it's relatively perilous, antagonistic, or perhaps even forewarning. But like you said, this one, he wants the reader to go away feeling optimistic about the festive season, which hopefully they can carry into the new year. 
Hence the joyous tone of the last paragraph and the humour. And don't you think that you could pair this essay with something like Common Toad, which came just about a year, actually maybe only a few months later? Um, Orwell is, you know, he's a very sick man, but he's he's being hopeful, he's looking forward, and not only, in fact, maybe not at all for himself, but for humanity. And I think... Sorry, go on. The, the war, I mean, it took a toll on everyone, but it really took a toll on Orwell because... It wasn't just physical suffering. He was really, really in turmoil over the ideological mishandling of the war. So it had a massive toll on him. So the end of it has really liberated him to to be positive and look at the joy in life, nature with common toad, a child being happy, hence talking about toys. And, you know, I think that maybe if he'd written this in a different time, then he might have admitted, actually, I I really like these toys as well. But I think yeah. he's using the children as a bit of a smokescreen. And as we've already joked, there's several clear, not direct references to himself, but in, indirect references to himself. It's like when you say, my mate Dave has the lump on his... <laughs> what, what should he do about it? Well, your mate Dave should... <laughs> See a doctor yeah, immediately. Yeah. So he, I think he's in his own way, he's talking about himself, isn't he? I think he is. Shall we move on to the next essay, As I Please 66? Or do you have anything else to say about this one? No, I think we've, we've summed that one up pretty well. Like, the, the next essay is We Are Living It. as we record why do you think so Sam? because we are indulging in a very lovely alcoholic beverage having just eaten we had a lovely couple of buttery walkers mince pies oh yeah they're really nice please sponsor us walkers (laughs) I'm Scottish so you know I can do some advertising for you if you'd like and I eat your stuff every week (laughs) but um yeah so this essay is about it's a surprising essay he's telling us while go ahead, indulge over Christmas. And he gives his argument for it. Whereas we would expect him to be telling us, think about, he does mention it, but think about those in the world who can't indulge. Hence, but if you take that attitude at this time of year, you're doing the wrong thing, he says. And we've indulged tonight in honour of this essay. Not because we're gluttonous. No, not at all. (laughs) The basic idea of this essay is that, yes... Um, times are hard. This was published the very next year after Bear Christmas for the Children. It was published in the Tribune, 20th of December, 1946. And it's one of the As I Please essays, As I Please 66. Um, so yes, the idea of this essay is that yes, times are hard. Yes, people have it really bad all around the world. I mean, as he points out, Europe from the, the Rhine to Basically, the Pacific is in ruins and people are bombed out and starving. He says in India and China, people get by on one meal a day. Uh, India was only, you know, a few years away from really awful famines. Um, So, uh, as Simon pointed out, you might wonder, you know, why would a socialist write about indulgence at Christmas? But Orwell believes that if you can, it's important to indulge at Christmas, isn't it, according to Orwell? Absolutely, and this is a man who's a socialist, but he's become anti-communist. 
And one of the things associated with Soviet communism is the dourness, the, the lack of joy. And do you feel as though he's on his anti-communist crusade by saying, no, go for it, enjoy yourself on this, on this uh, religious festival? I think this is, I don't know if it's anti-communist, but I think it's very much anti-ideological rigidity. Um, yeah. Because I think there's often this idea, I think even these days, that left-wing people have to be kind of holier than thou, yeah. uh, po-faced, to use an old-fashioned term, dour. Um, but... I think this is Orwell bucking the trend and showing that, you know, you can have left-wing views but still like a good time. And, and he also mentions, like, the residue of war and how having an indulgent Christmas might seem a little bit out of place in that, such an atmosphere. What would you say as to this year, 2021, what would be the guilt behind an indulgent Christmas? Well, of course, you know, Omicron's popped up in the last few weeks and we're all feeling a bit uncertain because on the one hand, it's a bit like last year because we're not sure if the vaccines are going to work. But on the other hand, our governments haven't said, you know, don't go and visit people, don't go for drinks. So we're all a bit confused. Um, and we're also very tired, very much fatigued by the last couple of years. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is another example of how Orwell can really help us in the present day. So if there ever was a Christmas for you to go out and indulge, if you have the means to do so, do it. Christ, life's hard enough as it is right now. The, the beginning of the essay ruined one of my long-established thoughts and anecdotes. I'm always telling people about Roman vomitorians. Oh, did you believe in the vomitorians? I did. It was one of the anecdotes I used to impress. Oh, did you know the Romans used to eat to the point of being sick, retire to the vomitorium where they would vomit and then go back and eat more? And it's what you've based your meals on ever since, isn't it? Yeah, and I've got my own little vomitorium. You really need to do I'm something. I have to turn it into a study now. <laughs> so, or a dietorium. I really like how Orwell goes, sort of reaches back into history for this essay. How, you know, he's writing Christmas. I, I, again, it's a brilliant quote. The whole point of Christmas is that it is a debauch. <laughs> As it was probably long before the birth of Christ was arbitrarily fixed at that date. This is a Christmas essay for atheists and agnostics. It is, it so, is, yeah. Which I think is one of the reasons you and I like it. I mean, if you are a practising Christian and believe Christmas is celebrating the birth of Christ, you're not going to agree with what he says in this essay. He's saying it's not about that whatsoever. And let's be honest... For the majority of people, it's not. It is Saturnalia. I mean, we, we're living in Japan right now, which is clearly not a Christian country, and everybody's celebrating Christmas because they say, oh, we like that. We'll take that on, that chance to debauch and spend a bit of time with family. What do you make of Orwell's idea that, basically, to sum it up, a little bit of what you fancy is good for you now and then... Um, how about this quote Well, here? you know me very well, Lewis. Do I live my life to that? I have. <laughs> uh, how about this quote here? Um, one may decide, with full knowledge of what one is doing, that an occasional good time 
is worth the damage it inflicts on one's liver. <laughs> My thoughts exactly. I adore his attitude towards teetotalers and vegetarians in this essay, that they're just people who can't take the pain that comes with debauchery and they just want to live longer. We must say, you know, times have changed a bit and, you know, we've not got anything against teetotalers or vegetarians. People well, have very good reasons for it. <laughs> um, vegetarianism, yes. But what needs to be explained is that Orwell is reacting against the kind of austere socialists of his day, the people who throughout the 30s were trying to kind of upend the social order through teetotalism and vegetarianism. And also after... Uh, six years of war um, to still be like uh, making people feel guilty for trying to have a good time you know it's not a good move and he is an Edwardian child so the last remnants of Victorian abstinence and decency were still around when he was a child quite right and he would have been he would have been brought up being told sex alcohol is bad is bad for you Having said, you that, having said that, you know, the Victorians were a bit more complex than we give them credit for. And the Victorians loved Christmas and they did. I mean, most, they of, kind our, of, invented it, most really, of our Christmas really. traditions come from them. Um, and don't you think that some of his um, references to Christmas, again, like in the previous essay, we're getting a window into little Eric Blair's childhood. Listen to this. So children know this, as in the importance of Christmas and the debauchery of Christmas, very well. From their point of view, Christmas is not a day of temperate enjoyment, but of fierce pleasures, which they are quite willing to pay for with a certain amount of pain. The awakening at about 4am to expect your sto inspect your stocking, the quarrels over toys all through the morning, and the exciting whiffs of mincemeat and sage and onions escaping from the kitchen door, the battle with enormous platefuls of turkey, and the pulling of the wishbone, the darkening of the windows, and the entry of the flaming plum pudding, the hurry to make sure that everyone has a piece on his plate while the brandy is still alight, the momentary panic when it is rumoured that baby has swallowed the thrutney bit, <laughs> the stupor all through the afternoon, the Christmas cake with the almond icing an inch thick. So I think that's little Eric Blair's Christmas. Remarkably similar to mine when I was a child. And mine. Like 70 years after his. Very little's changed on Christmas tradition, has it? Very In Britain In Britain, yeah. I used to love the Christmas pudding with the pound coin inside it. Oh, did your family do that? To see who got it. I used to love that. We had a trifle. Or oh, what What happened? <laughs> Every was, Christmas without fail. Trifling affair. I love it when he starts talking about the history of literature on all things indulged. No poems in praise of water. <laughs> yeah. And it's true, isn't it? I mean, Bacchus, the god of wine... Tell me who's the god of chia seeds is. <laughs> the god of or, quinoa. Yeah, or quinoa. <laughs> there isn't one. So yes, uh, as Orwell points out, there's a huge literature of poems, uh, songs, etc. about drink. And again, this is bringing it back to a very Orwellian theme. Literature, literature and human experience and society, isn't it? So in today's society... 
We're almost made to feel guilty when we have a drink or when we eat something which isn't necessarily good for us or eat too much of it. Why do you think that is? Because I have a theory on this, why dieting and abstinence is becoming fashionable. Well, I think I might have an inkling of what your theory could be, but I suppose if you were being cynical about it, it could be, say, I've often looked, you know, thought about the whole concept of the gym and it's kind of a very late capitalist thing, isn't it? That we no longer have to use our bodies to do physical toil anymore. So we pay for the privilege of spending a few hours in an airless room uh, running on a treadmill pointlessly. Uh, yeah. is, that some, is that similar to what you were thinking? That's one of them. And related to the gym, we live in an era now where self-enhancement, like building up our self-portfolio. You're this, you back to cultural capital again. With, you know, with our Instagram and our social media and looking good. The gym is part of that. But my main theory is that all of this is going on, all these different diets and different products we're supposed to eat now, is that we're just constantly having to open up new markets to capitalism. New markets which can be exploited and profit made. Tobacco and alcohol, there's not much further they can go with that. Any alcohol that's ever been made has been made. So they have to open up new markets to keep on making profit and, and being consumers. So now they're starting to tell us to eat these millennia-old Mexican seeds that have always been there, but only now we're being told that eating them will make them make us live longer. And then, of course, that pushes the prices up for the indigenous people who've been eating them for yeah. years. In Orwell's time, these tea being teetotal vegetarian, it was very much a kind of political choice. And, of course, it still is a political choice for many people, particularly vegetarianism and veganism. There is an argument to be made that it's an environmentally friendly choice. And we have to, you know, carnivores like you and I have to face up to that, that we are, by our purchasing and consuming of meat, you know, we are kind of making things a bit worse for the planet. Although, I might add, not as bad as countries that don't... Uh, follow climate treaty guidelines or uh, factories which um, are not following the regulations that have been set down. Again, it's that, it's that pushing of the responsibility onto the individual rather than the collective, which is one of the problems yeah, of modern society. Exactly. I tell you what, rather than the whole world giving up eating beef, close down half of the coal plants that exist. It'll have a much bigger effect create more uh, renewable energy sources. But I think the thing with beef is that they have to tear down the rainforest for the cattle, isn't it? So I do agree on that one. I would rather that the price of beef just got put up very much higher because there's not so much land in which for, for cattle to graze rather than us eating cheap beef. I wouldn't want to stop eating beef. I just don't mind seeing the price go up. I don't think any rainforests are being torn down for chickens. As far as we know. Or pigs. Or even sheep. Sheep don't, you know, sheep can just roam around in the mountains. But it's beef, I think. When people are, you've got to be careful just labelling meat. But 
the other meats, I think, come to a more ethical viewpoint with regards to animal life as opposed to the environment. But... What do you think of Orwell's stance on drink? The idea that um, outright drunkenness is okay if it's once or twice a year. I don't have a stance on drink. I have more of a lean. <laughs> a, a lurch. What's yeah. your lurch on drink? A stagger. <laughs> My stagger. My stagger on drink is that for the average human, life is tough. If you're middle class, working class, upper class, life is tough in different ways. And now and then letting my hair down through alcohol releases stress, lets me become something I'm not, allows me to, for want of a better word, just relax. Well, um, I should say... I might relax too much, <laughs> but... You know, uh, certain people uh, sometimes ask me, you know, when I've had a bit too much to drink, <laughs> certain people ask me, Lewis, why do you do this to yourself? <laughs> and um, I think Orwell has the perfect answer here. The whole experience, including the repentance afterwards makes a sort of break in one's mental routine, comparable to a weekend in a foreign country, which is probably beneficial. Absolutely. It really is. And do you know when you have a hangover, the next day you, you sit down and I'd always do my best self-reflection with a hangover. Simon, what are you doing with your life? Why are you doing all this? And I really come up with my best ideas. <laughs> My best healthy ideas when I'm suffering from a hangover. Right, I need to do this and I need to do that. What's your uh, go-to hangover food? Something bad for me. Fast food. How about you? Well, currently, I'm because I'm living in Tokyo's Little India, I order a nice spicy curry with a cheese naan. Oh, yeah. It's like a pizza or burger. It, when I was living in, back home in England, it would be an English breakfast. The first thing I do um, in the morning when I've got a hangover is after I drink a glass of water, I make myself a cup of very strong, very sweet tea. Very strong, very sweet black tea, maybe with a bit of milk. And does it work? It helps. I mean, nothing makes it disappear, does it? But have you ever done the, uh, the hair of a dog? Yeah. Does it work? I mean, it, it, it delays. It's not a cure, it's a postponement. It's like when you, when you have to... Stay of execution. Exactly. Like when you have to like meet your mother-in-law. Well, I've never been married, but I guess it would... You, could, you can only delay, you can't ever get out of it. But um, it works for me because one of the reasons you have a hangover is one's because you're dehydrated. Second is the shock of the alcohol leaving your bloodstream. So what a hair of the dog does is just slow down that process, hence you don't feel so bad. Is the alcohol leaving in our bloodstream one of the reasons we shake a bit when we're hungover? Yeah. Because we can sort of feel it draining out yeah. of us. It's awful, isn't it, the shakes? That's the worst part oh, of it. We talked about this before, but where I'm from, we call it the fear. The fear. The, the next day, when you first wake up, you've still got quite a lot of alcohol in your system, so you're still quite jolly. And, and then you eat... And then after lunch, it starts to wear off the, the euphoria of alcohol. And then the fear comes. And you, it's ine inevitably a Sunday. 
<laughs> You're thinking about work the next day. I don't Life know. is bleak. My, for me, it's usually a Saturday, which is the day after we record this podcast. I don't know what the connection <laughs> is there. But the, do you have a... Is there a drink that you avoid that is particularly bad for you when it comes to hangover, you know, causing hangovers the Vodka. next day? A la your birthday. Bad news, Simon. I've got more in the way. Oh, trust. Um, I only ever drink vodka when with you because of you, the Russian influence the Russian in your life. Um, don't actually like it, but... <laughs> you drink, you drink, drink enough it. of it. Yeah, but that time we went out for your birthday to a Russian restaurant and consumed... Half of the Russian supply of vodka. I think it was mostly, you know, there were about six people there and it was mostly just them watching us drink for most of the evening. That that wasn't a nice... But now I'm I'm over 30. It's a two-day hangover now. That's true. It gets worse, doesn't it? It does get worse. I noticed a very sharp divide between, like, in my 20s being fine, and then one day suddenly it wasn't anymore. You're like, why am I still sick on Monday? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> for me, it's uh, red wine, which is one of the reasons... Listeners, uh, Simon is joining me for Christmas this year once again. Um, and, uh, you know... You're taking in your orphan child again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, yes, uh, I learned last year that really red wine is not my friend. I, I'll, drink, I'll, I'll, rem- I'll keep drinking port. I couldn't give up port for anything. But if the doctor told me that port would kill me, I don't think I would stop drinking it. <laughs> red wine doesn't agree with you, does it? No, it doesn't. There's, there's no alcohol that doesn't agree with me. It's just alcohol I don't particularly like. Rum doesn't really agree with me either, as we discovered. I don't think you have a particular... Um, bad, particularly bad relationship with rum. It's just how much you drank of it. <laughs> I think it was you're you, like bloody Jack Sparrow <laughs> on heat. Why is the rum always gone? Oh. Captain Morgan was blushing. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think, Simon? Um, Not a lot. After this, mold beer. Orwell finishes this essay quite poignantly. I think writing. I am writing in praise, so this was published 1946, I'm writing in praise of Christmas, but in praise of Christmas 1947, or perhaps 1948, and he says even later, uh, but we will have one, an old-fashioned proper Christmas, sooner or later, in 1947, or 1948, or maybe even in 1949. What does this teach us about the times we live in? The first poignant thing to mention is he listed the remaining Christmases he ended up having in his lifespan. Quite true, because he died in 1950. And I wonder if that was a conscious or subconscious thing in listing the three Christmases he would have left. Maybe he was aware that he had about three years left, having been diagnosed with TB. Um, Other than that, it's just hope, isn't it? He's just... Like we are now in times of COVID, just constantly hoping for a return to normality or what we deem to be normality is what he's doing here. Or simply a return to a time when it's easy for us to go and see our family, to go and see them without worrying we're going to be spreading the virus, to let go. And that's something that thankfully we've still been able to do. At least, you know, I know I've been able to do these past couple of Christmases. 
we certainly let go last year, didn't we? And I plan to let go this year. Yes. Um, Tokyo beware. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I like Christmas. Of course, I like Christmas because, as Orwell says, it's a debauch. It's a nice licensed debauch. But I also like it because it's a time to look back. Yeah. And it's a time to look forward. And it's a time when hope doesn't feel so hollow and empty. And in looking back and looking forward, you're, you're drawing, drawing a line in the sand, aren't you? We're at the end of the year, we're at the, like you say, we're at a time of reflection. So being, so taking ourselves, putting our bodies through such debauchery and living to such excess for that one day, is kind of like a cleansing of the soul. As Orwell writes, a mental break. A mental break, yeah. Let's read out the last few lines of this essay. I think, again, like the last essay and like Common Toad, very poignant and classic Orwellian style, a bit of humour, a bit of hope. So, meanwhile, Christmas is here, or nearly. Santa Claus is rounding up his reindeer. The postman staggers from door to door beneath his bulging sack of Christmas cards. The black markets are humming and Britain has imported over 7,000 crates of mistletoe from France. There's economy again. So I wish everyone an old-fashioned Christmas in 1947. And meanwhile, half a turkey, three tangerines, and a bottle of whiskey at not more than double the legal price. Merry Christmas, Lewis. Merry Christmas, Simon. And listeners, the compliments of the season. Have a happy one, have a healthy one, and take care. Or well. That ends well.